I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Olivia Worth's loyalty knows no bounds, whether it's to her family or in her role as CEO of Qantas Loyalty. She's certainly flying high, or otherwise you'll find her at the beach. Well, Olivia Worth, welcome to Short Black. Thanks for having me. CEO Qantas Loyalty, you've jumped out of the ranks of management into leadership and CEO. Nice change? I'm really enjoying it, actually. uh, It is a change, definitely, and I've been at Qantas for 10 years now and mainly or always been looking after the media and PR and government relations and marketing and those sorts of things. So it's definitely a change, change of pace, same business, but a very different business that we're running and I'm loving it. What's the biggest challenge for the last 12 months? I know you want to deliver bottom line and your results are great, but... Yeah, the biggest challenge for us um, is having a growth mindset. How do you make sure that you're always trying to beat the year before? How do you keep creating new things out of a business in our loyalty business, it's been around for three decades, it's been around for over 33 years. So how do you start doing something new? And then for me, how do you keep, how do you keep your people energised? You know, when you, you are having to meet hard targets year after year, how do you make sure that people aren't tired? How do, they, how do you get them to rock up in the morning and feel happy to be there and continue to do their job? So for me, I spent a lot of time thinking about people, how you energise, how you have a great culture and having people to feel happy about turning up at work every day. Your major competitor has decided to bring their loyalty program back inside the business. Uh, What does that say about what you're doing? You must be doing something right. Absolutely. And you think about it because at the end of the day, the Frequent Fly program, we're just about our customers. There's 13 million of them uh, in the Frequent Fly program as members and you want to keep them close. So why would you you want someone else to get in between you and your customer? As an airline, we, our customers are at the heart of what we do. So it makes sense, completely makes sense. It's in line with what we're doing and there's no way. Uh, that we would be looking to have someone else own our customers, you know. Competition's good? Competition's great. You need competition because it makes you it makes you sharper, it makes you focused, and it means ultimately that you just want to keep doing things better, right? You don't want complacency. Complacency leads to the ordinary, frankly, uh, and our customers demand that. And there's lots of competition out there. So I think it's good for everyone. It's good for the customer ultimately, but it's good for us because it keeps you on your toes. How do you quieten the naysayers who were angry about the Frequent Flyer program that they could never get their points? One reality is that we're always going to have some naysayers, yeah. but it's really about listening to the customer and understanding what they're real, like what are the pain points? And, and that's what we really try to focus on to better understand not our customers as what their number is, it's what, as a human being, like what, what do you want out of the program? What is going to deliver you happiness? What, what are you driving for? And all the research shows people just want to go on their dream holiday and points are a way of getting there. So how do we make that easier? So a lot of our focus is about how do we improve the number of seats or how do we increase value, how do you increase the number of ways that you can earn points. 
because ultimately people are eager to go on holidays. And cash them in. And cash them in and, and, and that that's where the true value is because there's no point, uh, excuse the pun, but there's no point accumulating all these points if you can't do anything with it. Yeah, you, know? you need to be able to spend them. Mm. And people want to spend them ultimately on a holiday. Of all the careers you could have chosen, arguably this is one of the best. You've got to have fun. Oh, it's fabulous. I love it. It's it's a fun business. It's a dynamic business within a broader business within Australia that's been around for 100 years. You know, it's a brand that people love. And for me and what I like doing, I like working with people. Um, I'm one of those people that like people. And team's really important for me. And so it's a phenomenal combination of focusing on the customer, having an amazing, incredible brand that Qantas is, which plays such an important role in Australia, um, and having the strength behind you and having the combination. It's fabulous. And, and leading a team, you know, I, I do enjoy that leadership piece. You started out, grew up in Terrigal on the New South Wales Central Coast. Mum was a nurse, dad worked in real estate. You are a self-described beach-loving tomboy. Yep. Still are? Still are, absolutely, and I'm back at the beach, which is fantastic, you know, 40 years later. So I did grow up on the beach and I love the sense of freedom. As a kid, it was an incredible place. And at that stage, Central Coast and Terrigal was a really small, sort of more like a village, I guess, and you had the run of the place and a sense of freedom and being at the beach and swimming and surfing and just having fun. It's still absolutely the piece of nature that grounds me. Um, and we live back at the beach now in Sydney and, uh, and I love it. I'll be there every day. What triggered the trajectory into tourism? By chance, frankly. So I um, left home as soon as I'd finished school and went to Bathurst to uh, study journalism. And it was a fantastic uh, experience being but. out. And, no, I loved it. There was no buts about it. So I went there sort of not really knowing what I wanted to do but wanted to work around media. I'd always been interested in, in media from a young age and knew that I wanted to work in it or around it. So I went in there, studied um, PR and politics, and then purely by chance my first job out of university uh, was working for Bruce Baird who was uh, the former Olympic minister and transport minister in New South Wales and he went and set up or became part of a lobby group for tourism. So it was it was an industry I fell in by chance and I had such a great experience that first job out of uni which is always so important for people. The leadership that he showed and the generosity and he just he was phenomenal in terms of being a mentor for me. And I fell in love with the industry because it was interesting, it was people-related, it talked to Australia and the strengths that we had as a country and I ended up just sort of staying, I guess. The negative side of that business is being called a spin doctor. Mm. I kind of don't like the term but mm. there's an element of truth to it, isn't there? Well, there always is, I guess, and, and it doesn't matter who you're, who you're spinning to because my career has always been essentially about working with stakeholders, you know, whether it was the media or whether it was the government or policy makers. Yeah, you're trying to convince them or talk to them about um, whatever it is. If it's a policy issue or a story about the company, you're trying to take them on a, on a journey, I guess, and get them to agree with the story that you're telling them. So, yeah, fun job, a good place to be, and you spend a lot of time trying to convince people. It's never straightforward and it's never easy. There are going to be difficult times mm. that come along. Do you have a mantra of how you manage difficult times? Yeah, I think... Um, and for the business, for yourself? You know, for myself, definitely trying to, firstly, not, not take it too seriously for me is really important and I, I think I learnt that along the way because if you take yourself too seriously then you, you put all this extra pressure on that, that's, frankly, it's all manufactured, it's not needed. So... Try and not take it too seriously. And and secondly, I really try and I call it a slow heartbeat. How do you remain calm? 
because there's always things that are going on and particularly if you're if you're dealing with a high pressure environment and, and a crisis situation as such you've got to remain calm have a slow heartbeat to make sure that you're making the right decisions and the other thing is is you, for me the way I manage it is surrounding yourself with good people you're never on your own so how do you make sure that you know recognize the weaknesses and how do you pull on others that may have strengths that you mightn't have um, so how do you seek out the right counsel? So making sure that you, you have a increased strength or increased capability from people that you can draw from. Have you learned a lot about leadership in the last 10 years? Oh, loads. Oh, absolutely. And I think there's always this transition. It's an interesting point in your career when you're going from sort of managing to, to leadership. There is a genuine transition because what you're famous for, you know, when you're younger in your career isn't going to be what you're famous for in the future because it is about leadership and it's how you bring out the best in people. Um, Key lessons in that front? Oh, loads. For me, trust and having trust in your people is always really important. How do you engender that trust then? Through transparency and, and openness, I think. So sharing sharing what you can. Because I always believe that if you can share more about a particular problem or if you can try and get people to understand more than just the superficial facts, bring them in, bring them in the tent. Show them, show them trust, show them you're going to be honest, transparent and always 100% with them, then I think that doesn't engender trust. And ultimately that, for me anyway, always brings out the best in people because you're treating them with decency, treating them like adults, and I think that's ultimately what people want. How do you deal with weakness then in your team or within yourself when you recognise you don't know something oh, that you should? God, I, I think, again, from an early age I was lucky at Qantas anyway the last 10 years and it's something I learned really early on because at that stage we were dealing with some quite difficult challenges and I, I didn't know all the answers. And it's sort of confronting, you know, being brought into a company that is high profile so anything you do is going to end up on the front page, frankly. And therefore I, I learned really early on it's, A, it's really important to, to say I don't know. If, I, if you don't know something, I don't know. Secondly, if you make a mistake, own it. And you sort of have to when you're in media relations anyway because it's going to be pretty public. And then just seek counsel and genuinely seek counsel. Seek out people's opinions that are going to be different from your own to pressure test your thinking. And for me, seek out those that have been there before. There are people that have done this before. You're not, you're not alone. I really sought out those people that had been there before, that had seen similar situations, and how, and how do I learn from that? And, and those people I still hold dear to me today. A lot of people get scared of dealing with the media and yet it's been your every day for mm. 10 years. Not so much now in this new role. What do you think you learnt? For me, journalists are people. They're human beings. So how do you how do you talk to someone? It shouldn't be anything that's different. It's, it's no different to a different conversation you're having with a friend or family member. So the advice I've always given, particularly when I was in an advisory role, was it's a human interaction and see it as its simplest forms. Yes, there's going to be some, you know, rough and tumble in the questions, but at the end of the day, they're, they're two human beings having a conversation. Secondly, know your stuff. Don't go into an interview if you don't know what you're talking about, for starters. And, and thirdly, sometimes you don't know all the answers. It's an awkward situation, but sometimes you're better off saying, I don't know, rather than bumbling your way in and, and making facts up on the way. That is gonna, that's going to end in tears, frankly. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Best piece of advice. I've been given lots of advice. I think, I do think there has been a moment in my, for me in, in my career, particularly over the last sort of 10 years, around it's okay to take risks. And I think often we underestimate the strength that it requires to take risks. But being a risk taker, I think, is a good thing. 
and being calculated. It's not being cavalier, but it's okay to take risks and it's okay to make mistakes, I guess. I think I've probably been a perfectionist from early days. You ask my mum and she'd tell me that. I've always been a perfectionist. And so that bit of advice around it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay to take risks has been sort of invigorating in a way. What risks do you think you've taken? Um, I think I've taken risks around my career, around moving into different areas, into the unknown. You know, I, Were I've, they handed to you or did you chase them? Oh, a bit of both, I think, because I wanted new challenges and you want more, you know, because I, I, you, know, you get quite comfortable when you're dealing with the media, even though lots of people wouldn't like it. It was something that I was comfortable or confident in and you want more. So, you know, I was given a great opportunity to take on the brand and marketing piece and then looking after customer quarters, and that's a risk. And I think sometimes for women, we're not great at sticking up your hand and saying, yeah, I want to try something something new or something, something in the unknown. It's one of those traits that are different about men and women, particularly around interviews. You know, women all think about, oh, I don't know 80%, whereas men go, yeah, I can, I can do that. So it's about pushing yourself and saying, it's okay. It's okay if you don't know everything. When it came to becoming the CEO of Qantas Loyalty, did you ask first or you sniffed an opportunity and then explored it? I was given an opportunity with that one. I'd openly been talking to Alan. I've worked for Alan since he's really been CEO, so I was brought on over 10 years ago. So I had a really strong relationship with him as my boss and we'd often have open conversations about career and what I wanted to do and I'd often talked about what the sorts of opportunities I thought I could stretch into and this was definitely one of them but it was opportunistic in that there was a people that left the company essentially and I was, I was fortunate enough to be asked to do the role. But being a chief executive requires understanding the balance sheet. Yeah. Did you have to upskill? Absolutely. But again, I've been, on, I've been a group executive there for eight or nine years. And when we sit on the group executive, you're across all the business. So while I wasn't responsible for a P&L, I definitely, you know, understood how the business operated. So I guess I had... Um, absorption. I had absorption there. And even though I was definitely on the artistic side, I actually did quite high level maths at HSC. So I had to sort of <laughs> dig back down into my... Uh, I guess more mathematical side, um, but I actually really enjoy it. I like the I like the accountability. I like the responsibility. I've been held accountable for achieving a number. Right, it's it's something quite tangible. Whereas when you're in the media, and when you're working in sort of that humanities area, it's very subjective. It's so subjective, and you have lots of different opinions. Whereas this is bottom line, pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, well, your bottom line's pretty good. Record earnings in the first half of 2018-19 financial year, underlying before tax earnings of $175 million, up 4%. When those numbers came in, how did you feel? Relieved. <laughs> <laughs> Not confident, just relieved. <laughs> no. And, and I was just really proud of the team, to be honest. You know, our business has really strong targets. We're the only part of the group that has a public uh, target out there. So we're aiming to grow this business um, by 10% every year to $500 to $600 million um, in a couple of years' time. So it's it does put pressure on the team, but it also means that you're so focused on achieving it. So it was really a sense of pride, I think, for the team that, you know, collectively we've come together and we've seen really good growth. And for you taking that leap into the CEO's role... It's critical that you deliver some results. Absolutely. And particularly given my background, it was something that I needed to frankly prove myself that, yes, I can, you know, manage a brand and, yes, you can do the right thing in terms of understanding the customer, but this has a different edge because you've got to do all those things but also ensure that you can essentially manage a business. Yeah, I I think um, it was definitely something that I needed to prove myself that I could do. 
In the 10 years you've been at Qantas, you've been described or labelled as the smiling assassin, titanium tough and an enigma. Fair call? <laughs> I'm not too sure about that. Um, smiling assassin. Well, I, look, you know, I, I do try and I love what I do. There'd be no point doing it. So I, I think that that's probably a fair thing to say. I'm not too <laughs> sure about the others. I'm pretty um, I'm pretty uh, strong in a battle, I guess, and I've weathered a lot and I don't... Uh, I don't really get, I don't get, um, I don't get concerned by the pressure, I guess. There was a great level of fascination, though, when you first started. A gorgeous young woman who had the gift of the gab, knew how to present the right look, tone, conversation, spin. Was it uncomfortable? Oh, really uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable because everything you're told about managing the media and managing stakeholders is that you're, you're the backroom person. And you become the front. And you become the front and then you become the story and that's not what you want, right? Um, but we did make a decision as a team that during this stage that we needed to make sure that there was someone talking on behalf of Qantas. Consistently. Consistently. And we looked back at some difficult stages that we'd had around industrial unrest and incidents and one of the things, and I went and talked to the media actually when I first joined and what I heard was we can't often get a comment from Qantas or it's difficult to get information and... Therefore, that void meant that people were suspicious. So it was never going to be the role of the CEO to be the constant sort of firefighting and that we decided that actually we needed to someone that actually could help explain to our customers what was going on. So if there was difficulties and if we were going to be unrest or, if you know, the number of things we dealt with, you know, there was an ash cloud or, (laughs) you know, all these sorts of things, it was a fascinating time. You needed to explain why because otherwise it looks like there's something wrong and there wasn't. So it was all about saying, look, this is transparency. This is what's going on. This is the information that we have and this is what we're going to tell you at that time. And that feedback that we got from our customers was actually really positive because it meant at least they knew what was going on. So it was making sure we had a voice. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You as a professional versus you as a woman in those early days... Did you fall into the trap of feeling the need to look the part? No, I didn't. It's funny, but I, I, I distinctly remember this one time because I'm not, um, I'm not really one for for makeup or it's just not who I am, right? And I remember foolishly, foolishly reading this post that had been forwarded to me, and it was sort of this ridiculous sort of basically takedown of how I looked. And there was this comment around, oh, she's used eyebrow pencil. Really? I, yeah, yeah. And it was from pilots and it was pilots that were commenting on on how I was looking. And at that time it really made me feel, it's the only time I remember feeling quite, quite self-conscious because mm. it wasn't something I was thinking about. You're thinking about the message and all this sort of stuff, but it really made me, oh, okay, is this something I should be worrying about? Do my eyebrows look weird? <laughs> it was one of those odd times. From that moment on I decided I wasn't going to read that kind of silly commentary, frankly, is going to focus on what I'm doing because it wasn't about what I look like. It was going to be on what I was talking about. But is it fair that you're always judged? It's it's a fact of life, I guess. And 
I think it's good that there's conversations going on now around the high level or the types of conversations we have about women who are in the public. If you look at the commentary that's been around politician or other high-profile women, unfortunately when they talk about them, it's, it's often to do with the gender. It's often to do with how they look or they're a mother of two or all these sorts of things which frankly seem irrelevant if it's a man. So at least we're having a conversation about it. Uh, we need to have more conversations about it and I'm hoping in time that'll change. But it, it's unfortunately just one of those realities and I think you need to feel confident in yourself that it doesn't really matter. I had a conversation with my niece at the weekend and I was telling her I was coming to interview you and she said, oh, my goodness, Olivia Worth, I love Olivia. I said, why is that? She said, well, a couple of years ago, she wouldn't even remember this, but she came to our university and she arrived and she was all corporate but she had no makeup on. And she looked amazing and our team just went, oh, a woman's made it and she's not having to wear makeup. And she actually thought it was such a positive that you didn't feel the need to have all of the accoutrements that a lot of professional women feel they have to have. And it said a lot to her as a young woman on the rise in, in her career. Do you have any awareness that that's the sort of impression you give young women? No, not really. I guess I do try and, and I talk about it a lot with my broader team around just being who you are and how do you bring yourself to work? How do you bring your best self to work? It's no reason to pretend when you come to work because I think if you are your true self then ultimately you're going to be happier and you're going to be a better leader, a better manager to your people. So I do talk a lot about just be who you are uh, and I guess that's what I try and live by. What do you look for in good staff? Um, I look for the right cultural fit. So obviously there's always going to be an element of, of the right skills, capability, depending on what the role is. But cultural fit is absolutely, for me, fundamental, which means are they going to fit into the team? Are they going to act in the right way? Do they have the right values? Are our values aligned? Because ultimately that's got to make or break them in the workplace. Because if there's not the right cultural fit, regardless of how incredible they could be from a skills perspective or experience perspective, if culture isn't right, if they're not the right type of person, it's just not going to work. Everyone talks about the need for diversity these days inside a team. Do you think it's important? That's absolutely critical. We should be thinking about diversity in its broader sense. Not just gender. Not gender. Age, But we ethnicity. should be thinking about age and I think that is one area that often gets not spoken about. And I see it, you know, with the millennials in the workplace. They've got such drive and they want change and they want everything now. And I think sometimes we just need to make sure that we don't lose the wisdom and the counsel. So I think age is definitely critical. I think cultural diversity is important because you just get different, everyone's got a different view on the world. And why wouldn't we want to have 10 different views on the world around the table rather than one? You're definitely going to, you're going to be thinking about problems differently. You're going to be identifying issues. You're going to be looking at opportunities in a different way. And if you think about our broad customer base, we want a representation of that as well. So how do you facilitate that in your team? Do you conduct a diversity audit in your team and ensure that you yeah. know, you're ticking those boxes? Absolutely. So we, um, it's part of our balanced scorecard. We absolutely look at all those key measures around diversity to make sure that in our recruitment processes we're bringing people in. We also try and take the bias out of, of it. So what I mean by that, like interviews, so blind CVs, you don't know when you first get the CVs whether they're a man or a woman because it's been shown that there is automatic bias, if you know. We've all what, got unconscious bias, we do, haven't we? Right? What we about do. their age? All those personal details are taken off because otherwise you see your unconscious bias is going to come through. Uh, we think about interview panels, so having the right mix as well. So we try and do the best we can, but we, we talk about it and we also celebrate it. 
So in our workplace, we celebrate diversity. So we find opportunities to talk about important issues with the entire team, so with the entire business. Because I think if you can drive that awareness from top to bottom, it's going to improve it and it's going to make it easier for everyone. So if you're of different ethnicity or of different sexual persuasion, how do we encourage people to feel comfortable, happy and and welcome in the workplace? Businesses across the board are grappling with how to deal with the millennial onslaught and everything it means and brings to the table. Clearly all the research I've read and seen says that it's all about the experience. You live in the world of experience. So how do you tailor your business to that market and how how important is the market? The market's critical for us, and particularly when you look at the loyalty business. It's did a lot of Gen, Gen X and now Gen Y. Is that because um, they're not saving up for a house anymore? They're saving up for a holiday? No, 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 no. It's because of the skill set they require. So we, we're a digital business and you need people that have the right skill set. So often these young people coming out of university have the right skills available for us. Then you look broader at the Qantas group. It's a big issue for us around how do you make yourself an attractive employ- employer. But also your market clearly oh, has changed as a consequence. Completely. And what we are finding, though, is you do get sort of the under, depending where you look, under 35s, uh, and there's a, there's a significant proportion of our frequent flyer members who are that age, and they absolutely value travel. They value experience over other things, which gives us a great opportunity given we're an airline with a loyalty program, and it's a phenomenal opportunity. So... We are definitely looking at ways to how do we encourage more and greater engagement of of our members in that age group. What's the hottest app at the moment Mm. for you? Me personally? Well, yeah, both, for work and and for you personally. Uh, So for work, well, I guess I'm probably slightly biased. We've got quite a few apps within Qantas, so that's absolutely critical for me and how I operate. Personally, I use things like I've got a meditation app. I absolutely love Instagram. It's my way I shop, frankly, so I use that a lot. What else is on my homepage? Weather. Yeah, lots of things. Podcasts. I'm obsessed by podcasts. (laughs) What's your favourite? This American Life probably, Mm. um, which I'm sure a lot of people say. I love it because of the storytelling and I think it's the best storytelling probably in the world. I love the rawness of it and you never know what you're going to get. So you said earlier that you're a perfectionist and your mother would agree, but you've toned it down and part of your new role, you've introduced the wellbeing app, Mm. acknowledging you're a perfectionist and someone that checked emails at 2am. What stopped you from doing that? I just think I've got better balance, I think. And I think I was so, um, I probably was work obsessed. I think I was work obsessed and that meant that that kept driving, it was this sort of circular thing around driving the perfectionism and wanting to be on top of it. And I do think working in the media 24 hours a day probably fed those tendencies, but I've just probably, frankly, matured and realised that, you know, being successful means lots of things and you have to be happy in your own life and spend time doing other things. What does being successful mean to you? Being happy having a really, you know, happy family, happy husband, happy kids um, and spending time doing those things that I, that I love and, and thinking about work as a way of doing that as well rather than putting all my effort and energy in there. So who is Olivia Worth when you're not at Qantas? Mm. <laughs> I'm pretty much the same, I think. <laughs> you don't I, always have the corporate hat on. Oh, God, no. I definitely don't always have the corporate hat on. I'm a bit of a homebody I do love the beach. I love being outside. I love reading. Are you a runner? No, I exercise. What My do you knees do? are shot from netball. Pilates. I'm absolutely obsessed with Pilates. 
And I like that because I like it, the fact that it makes me be present because you're being guided through, you know, you have to think about your form. So for me, it's a fabulous way to get the day out of my head or a great way to start the day. And it brings, it brings balance for me. Clearly someone that makes you very happy is your husband, Paul. And when you met him, it made all sorts of headlines. I sure did. What was that like for you? It was really awful. And I, um, I'm actually a really private person and it was really hard because it felt something was so personal that everyone had an opinion on it and it was really hard. And I felt, um, I felt people were making judgments about me and my choices without understanding and it was it was really difficult. It was probably the hardest thing I've I've gone through, and it really made me have to think. No, it's it's okay. I'm happy in myself, and let's not worry about what everyone else was thinking because everyone had an opinion. I mean, he had a well known political persuasion before he left that yeah. industry and joined KPMG. Did you find people assumed your political persuasion as a consequence? You know, and how did that make you, know, you that feel? You know, that was one of the really hardest things because I, um, I had worked at the Australian Tourist Commission and then during that stage I went and worked for Joe Hockey who was the tourism minister and had a fabulous time inside his office and working with his team and I'd worked with that government quite a lot in my role. And then I'd done lots of government relations roles, including at Qantas where I worked with both sides you know, and I really enjoyed that. And I'd, I'd, I could easily work with both sides of politics and had friends on both sides. But what I found really disappointing and actually really challenging to deal with as soon as I was with Paul, my capacity to do my job was questioned and people automatically assumed that I was therefore going to favour the Labor Party. And it was a really hard thing to deal with because I often didn't think about things as men and women, but the fact that people were questioning my professional capacity and judgment because I was a woman that now was with a man who was had you know was from the ALP, it was extraordinary, extraordinary, and and kind of disappointing. What did you say to people? Any moments that stand out through that period where you just said that's not right, that's unfair, that's inappropriate? Yeah, there are a number of occasions, and and one of the unfortunate things though is around that time is that people would sort of they wouldn't be prepared to say it to you, but they'd talk around you, and and it was really difficult. But I do remember a number of occasions where um, it was actually in a, a work situation, not with my colleagues, but out sort of in the workforce. And it was raised a few sort of snickering comments around me and, you know, my choice of partner. And I sort of had enough. And I said, look, do, do you have a wife? Do you have a sister? Do you have a mother? And how do you think you would feel if they were being questioned in the same way that I am? And it... I got to a breaking point, I think, where it's like, it's enough and I'm a human being and I, I love this man and why are you questioning me? And maybe have so tried to put it back to them to say, how would you think about this if someone you love was treated in this way? Was it something you had to address at the office with your boss? Yeah, it was, but Alan was always incredibly supportive. Weirdly, he knew Paul better than I did. <laughs> you know, we had a lot of conversations about it and I never brought my, my home life to work and we sort of talked about that and how, how we would manage that and I think we managed that really well. But I, I just decided if there was going to be chatter around the office, I was going to just kind of ignore it and I took the view that over time people would get to see and get to know Paul, the person, as opposed to Paul, the union leader at the time. Has there been a conscious decision by the two of you to take a lower profile as a consequence? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a bit unfair, isn't it? But, oh, but necessary. Kind of, yeah, but, but also kind of love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, because... Why draw attention? Yeah, it's not needed and 
there are certain people that thrive off being in the media and I'm not one of them. And weirdly, either is Paul, even though his job beforehand required it. So the quiet life is a good thing. I, I, as I said, I'm a very private person and I prefer to keep it that way. One of the beautiful things that came with Paul was three stepchildren and I don't want to go into the detail of that, but the transition, because I have become a stepmum as well and I always think it's been a gift, my stepdaughter, for me. How was it for you? Oh, look, it absolutely is a gift and the kids are fantastic and I was very fortunate, I think, in, um, you know, how accepting the children have been and I, I absolutely, you know, love and adore them. And it's a really interesting relationship that you have as a stepmom, you mm. know, and you understand. you know, All care, yeah. all the responsibility <laughs> and mostly no say. <laughs> yeah, spot on, spot on. And, you know, I love the fact that they're very loving kids and, you know, they've just become part of our life. Just recently Annabelle Krabs highlighted the fact that she was very frustrated when women were always questioned about the juggle. Then she realised you know, of course, the dilemma is men are never questioned. And now it's like, well, you know, the juggle question is one that we all wanted ruled out. And yet now it's almost fair to ask it again, because as long as you ask it of both genders, it's a fair question. I think it is a fair question because it's a reality. It's hard and it is a juggle and it's all about how do you balance the two things. And there's always going to be situations where you have to put the kids first. It did make me rethink a lot of things. You know, it made me rethink, actually, this is not particularly family-friendly, so how do we rethink about that? How do we make sure that flexibility is real? For 10 years I felt like I couldn't get to know Olivia and yet all of a sudden you have made yourself more available. Was that deliberate? Not really. I don't think so. I, um, I guess when you get older you maybe feel more comfortable to, to share more of yourself because it was always uh, a mechanism for me around if you close down... If you don't share who you are, that's actually easy to contain, right? You know, because it, there was a, a stage where you felt bombarded and where you felt quite exposed and therefore the easiest way to contain it and to protect yourself and in some ways to protect your family as well. If, mm. you, if, if you put a shield up, it's actually easier to protect, right? Whereas if you bear more of yourself, you feel you're more open and exposed and probably feels a bit safer now, I guess. And in this new role as the CEO, there is a reason to get mm. on the front foot mm. from a marketing and PR perspective, mm. but also, as you say, a comfort level. Definitely a comfort level. Definitely more comfortable about myself because I think it would be my immediate response, particularly when you're under attack, to say, okay, I've got to bed down. You can see the facade at work, but you know, I, I can't let you in any further because it's too hard and it's too personal. Another survey's just come out about how hard it is for women in business. They're still not being represented on the ASX boards. We don't seem to be gaining any traction where we need to. Where do you think the sticking points are? There's always a number of sticking points and I think we're getting there, but I think, A, you know, making sure that the recruitment is in the right way. And I do think it starts, you know, if you think about the supply chain, I do think it starts with education as well making sure that we're giving women and girls the right advice and opportunities from an early age. Because uh, if you look at where the opportunity is going to be in the future, they're going to be in STEM, they're going to be in these sorts of areas, and we need to make sure that, again, we're not just recreating the same issues that we've got. So how do we look at opportunities? How do we bring women in? How do we make sure that we give them the confidence to go for the roles that they may not do? How do we get the mentoring in place? And in some cases, like we've done in the group, we've set ourselves some really hard targets 
including in pilots. So pilots is traditionally an area that is male-dominated and there's no reason why it should be. It, it's just been a traditional male-dominated sector. What adjustments have you had to make there? Uh, so we've got a pilot program so where we're bringing in new recruits and also a scholarship program around bringing women in and actively going out there and recruiting into the pilot schools to make sure that at that early, early stage that we've at least got the women coming into the system. So you've got targets set, but generally across the board in business, do you believe in quotas for women? No, I don't. I mean, I think I agree with having targets in place to make sure that we have the right level of seniority, that we have the right level of board. I think that's absolutely appropriate. But I do believe that it's it should be based merit-based, but I believe that women can still do that. I absolutely believe that's the case. But without a target, you're not going to get there. Correct, you need a target. You're absolutely in a target. Why don't you like quotas? Uh, it's not that I'm necessarily against quotas. I just, I, you know what I worry about, and maybe it is needed in some areas, I, I worried then that it's put back to you, you're only there because you're ticking a box, because you're filling a seat, because you're a woman. And I believe that women can do it based on merit and that we just haven't had the right system in place in order to allow us to do that. There's bias in the system. There's men making decisions. There's not the right flexibility at work that's needed for, for, for working mums. There's just not. And there's not the right opportunity. So, look, it's probably going to be a combination of things and, and quotas may be needed in some area, but you'd want to hope that it's a short-term fix to helpfully change the bias that exists in the system. Women absolutely have different strengths, but we have the capability to do what a man does. A lot of women look up to you, given your career path and the successful road you've taken. You must be asked to present and talk to a lot of young women. What are the key pieces of advice you give them? Don't be so hard on yourself. Take risks because at that early age there's so many opportunities and I think people get really set on this is going to be my career path and this is going to be my step, but it's a time to take risks and be brave in that. And also my, the one thing for me, and I wish I had have learned it earlier, was it's okay to make mistakes because that's the way you're going to learn. Is ambition a dirty word for you? No, I'm, I'm very ambitious. <laughs> ambitious I, to do what? Oh, just to, to do more and to be successful and uh, to bring about change in the places that I work. I am ambitious, absolutely, but not about reaching a, a career target, but about being an influence for change, you know, whether that be great opportunities for people or about making changes in our business for good. I like doing it. Are you a planner? Yes, I am a planner. Are you? Yeah. Are you a planner at university? Yeah, you know, I've always been pretty Five old. years, ten years? Oh, in terms of five, mm, no, probably not that long term, but definitely in the areas that I like. Like I love travel and exploring the world. I love that. So I've I've always got a plan about, you know, where I want to go and what's next and those sorts of things because I think that's good for my mental health to have something out there that I'm looking forward to. I need that because you need those things to pull you through because everyone has, has bad days. I mean, you're not, you're not living your life to your fullest if you don't. Where in the world do you really want to see and you haven't quite got there Bhutan. yet? Bhutan. I've been lobbying Paul for years now <laughs> and I think we're going to get there. We've cancelled it twice or we're going to get there in October next year. There's some incredible resorts but for me it's one of those places that has, still has an element of pristine to it that's untouched and I like hiking as well so there's a, there's a big draw card there. And your favourite holiday so far? Oh, Iceland. Really? Yeah. So we took the kids to Iceland uh, two years ago I think in, in the summer. So it was almost like 24 hours of sunshine and it is the most oh, truly spectacular. It's nature on steroids and um, I, I loved it. I love the 
the, the rawness of the place. It's untouched and if you get beyond sort of the city limits, there's no one there and it's wonderful and you feel like you feel like you're treading on earth that no one else has and it's an amazing, amazing experience. You did say that you were a netballer mm. when you were younger. I think if you play sport and a team sport, you're always a little bit competitive. Oh, no, I'm not a little bit. I am highly competitive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, along with being infectious, I am highly competitive. We have this joke, my husband is potentially the only person in the world that's more competitive than me which makes an interesting combination. So at birthday times, Paul always says, you know, the greatest gift you can give me is allowing me to win the present competition. So <laughs> What's the he, present competition? Oh, well, who, who gives each other the best present? Right. You know, but, yeah, I've, I've definitely got that competitiveness in me. And maybe I've got two younger brothers and maybe it was that as well. So, yeah. You've admitted to being ambitious and uh, for women it's often portrayed as, as a negative. Are we ever going to see you running Qantas one day? To be honest, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. This is a dream job for me. Like, I really love it. It combines everything. You know, my love of people and customers, it's got the massive marketing and communication aspect and it's got this amazing, incredible ability to build new businesses, right? So it's creative in that sense and I love that creativity that you can bring to the work. So I'm, I love what I do and you'll see me there for a while, I suspect. You must meet the most incredible people from mm. all walks of life. Mm. But the relationship with John Travolta is really special at Qantas, isn't it? Oh, it sure What's is. he like? Oh, he's fantastic. And, and he's a true aviation geek. Like he knows an incredible amount about aviation in general. Um, he's a highly qualified pilot and he is almost obsessional about Qantas. Like he, he knows a lot about our business. So It's so authentic, it, isn't it, oh, the relationship? It's, 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 it's so authentic. So authentic and he's been part of the business for a while. As you know, he's got his own Qantas jet, all those sorts of things. But it's just real. He generally loves the business and you, you think about all the celebrity endorsement out there, there wouldn't be many that have the same affinity for the business like John does. You have so many big stars that travel on Qantas. Hmm. You can name names if you like. The worst experience you've ever had? I, I don't think we've had. I mean, look, there's always in, interesting experiences. I think one of the... Uh, most challenging was when we brought Ellen and the show out to Australia. The fit out that we did inside the first cabin for her and her team was phenomenal. It was it was great. I mean, the engineers went to all lengths. What they, sort of stuff? What do you mean? They built a poker table that sort of connected in in the in the business lounge on board the A three eighty. So there were these specific pieces of infrastructure that they built to put in the aircraft specifically for her travel. I mean, they were fabulous passengers. The worst star travellers you've ever had? Um, worst demands? All the most eccentric? I, the food demands are often the most eccentric and, and very specific. And as you know, uh, and these conversations with Neil Perry are also a challenging one <laughs> when you're saying, look, you know, it's a vegan food but you can't include, you know, X, Y and Z. And then you put the complexity of actually making it work in the sky. There is a lot of man hours that goes in behind <laughs> those sorts of menus. So I think that's the most challenging. And Neil's often like, I can't make anything with that. I'm like, oh, off you go. Off you go. It's been a real pleasure having you as part of our podcast. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Sandra. I've really enjoyed it. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. The Professor and the Hack. Accessible politics with just a touch of depth. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And I'm Peter Van Onselen. You can find us, The Professor and the Hack, wherever you find quality podcasts.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.